Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts, the climate change podcast. On today's great episode, we have Brian Kahn, senior science writer with Climate Central. Don't forget to visit the website at americadaps.org and consider subscribing on iTunes at America Daps. Stick around and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. This is America Daps. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of the podcast. On today's episode, we have Brian Kahn from Climate Central. He's a senior science writer there. Hi, Brian. How are you? Hey, good. How are you doing, Doug? Really good. You know, I was really excited about this episode. I've been doing my homework on you and I've just, it was some conversations I get a little intimidated and not that I'm not intimidated by you, but it was just like, okay, this should be a fun conversation. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. And definitely don't be intimidated. Uh, I, I promise I'll be nice. <laughs> well, you know, I, I wanted to make a note. You are my third Columbia University guest and I, I think I might have a fourth one in the pipeline. And so this begs the question is that is Columbia actually graduating anything besides climate change people? You know, at this point, I don't know. I think it might just uh, they might rename it to, you know, the Climate Change University. It seems like there are so many different graduate programs and undergrad programs that are really focused on climate. So I think, uh, you know, it's kind of nice to see them taking it seriously. Well, it literally I mean, I, I people that come on the show are people I know, but then I have recommendations of people and just randomly it's like, oh, here's another Columbia person. So not that I mind. I it's, it's a great. There's this level of expertise there that I, I benefit from. So great. Welcome on. I wanted to just jump right into it. I want to uh, just so the listeners know what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Climate Central. Then I want to talk about a bit about what you write about. And then, you know, maybe you and I have a conversation about science communication. And as you can appreciate, communicating climate change can be very intimidating and frustrating, but also exhilarating. So that's sort of how I thought we could have this conversation. Cool. That sounds like a plan to me. All right. So I want you to do most of the talking here. So I just going to jump right into this is what is Climate Central? Uh, so, you know, the, the, the short version is that it's a research and journalism nonprofit. You know, the slightly longer version of that is that you know, we really focus on things that are going on in the U.S. when it comes to climate change uh, and particularly, you know, impacts. So not just the high level science, although we do certainly cover that and do a bit of our own. But really, you know, what does climate change mean to the average person? Um, if you're living on the coast, what does it mean in terms of sea level rise and potential storm flood risks? Uh, if you're living inland in the mountains, you know, what does it mean for wildfires or snowpack or water availability? Um, you know, those are the issues that I guess for me are really important to cover because you know, climate change is this big global phenomenon, but it's ultimately something that is affecting every single person on this planet. And so we want to convey at least a few of those impacts, particularly focused on the U.S. You know, a big part of our deal, too, is that we really are despite, you know, the kind of challenge of communicating the climate sphere and being labeled as advocacy, we're really not an advocacy group. Uh, our goal is to really talk about science and help inform policy choices and inform, inform personal choices so people understand, you know, that their choices matter both to reduce the impacts of climate change and then also to, I guess, uh, aim towards getting policymakers and other folks in place that can help make good decisions for their communities as well. So how old is the organization? Uh, we've been around since about 2008. Uh, it was, you know, started with a, a slightly different bent than what it is now. Um, back in the day, we were we were doing science, uh, you know, independent science work. Uh, there was also a focus on podcasting, producing segments for NPR and the nightly news and that kind of thing. And since then, uh, we've really transitioned to doing more daily news and original reporting for our site, as well as um, things that we farm to partners that might be interested in publishing our work as well. Okay, so I really want to dig into Climate Central, though. I mean, I've done my own homework on Climate Central in the last few days, and it, it really is an interesting organization. And so correct me if I'm wrong, and, you know, these are some of the things that probably staff don't even look at after you start. And so you have, like, this three-pillar approach. You have research, media and communication, and then you have social science research. And can you maybe elaborate on those kind of three pillars or – do you still do that? Yeah, no, that's funny. This is a good test for me, right? Do I do I know much about the place I work at? Um, <laughs> right, right, right. So, no, that's a good question. And, you know, we do do all those things. Um, it's really – so on the research side, it can give you the overview is that, like I said, it's really states-focused. Um, so we have a team that does sea level rise research that is focused – I mean, they, they start off doing things in the U.S. coast. Now they're looking at international coastal issues, um, sea level rise around the world, and doing sort of a lot of – 
things that connect with policymakers. So while they're producing relevant science, they're also really working with communities along the coast, going in to work with you know city governments, regional planning councils, even nonprofits, um, even groups that you might not expect them to be working with um, necessarily, like the NAACP. So they're doing a lot of work that you know really applies what sea level rise means for these places along the coast. In addition to that, the research side, we also have this program called States at Risk that looks at you know, individual climate risks for each state and how prepared those states are to deal with it. Uh, again, this is meant to inform policymakers, but also the general public about what the, the state of their state is, so to speak. When it comes to social science, we do have folks on our staff that are looking at uh, some interesting, they're looking at our projects and seeing, you know, for one degree, uh, how effective are they at communicating climate change? Um, and they're also, you know, helping us inform our journalism and other things that we do to make sure that, you know, we're using best communication practices to talk about climate change, that we're not, you know, reinforcing some kind of echo chamber or creating, you know, more divide on an issue that's already a fairly, unfortunately, divisive issue in terms of the politics of climate change, if not, you know, so much the science. Uh, so, you know, those programs still are in existence. They still are doing things and they, you know, tend to collaborate across the organization. So it's not uncommon for me to talk with our silver eyes people. It's not uncommon for me to talk with our social scientists or people, you know, working on our program that reaches out to TV meteorologists, provides them with climate graphics. We really are, you know, this organization that does a lot of things, but we still sort of find a way to chat with each other and make sure that we're leveraging each other's efforts and, you know, making sure our, our message is consistent and, you know, makes a lot of sense, I guess, across each part, uh, each program. I, I want to read, I hate reading straight from the text, but it, I thought it was so interesting on the social science research. And you, and you brought up a little of this, but, and it'll come out in some of our, the questions later, but let, let me just read this really quickly. Climate change is difficult to communicate, so we just don't send our information out and hope it is seen. We use proven social science methods to determine what messages resonate with our viewers and the best messengers to engage the public. We objectively evaluate our work using clear measures of comprehension, acceptance, and retention. We share this information with partner organizations to ensure the most effective public outreach. To me, you know, that's like, if you've actually solved that riddle, that's an amazing thing. And so that that's a tough thing to do, all what you just said there. And you feel like, of course, you're going to say you're effective. But I mean, you, you see what I'm saying, though, that is a very difficult challenge, what is just written out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, it's, and it's true, I think everyone working in the climate field is it is a bit of a work in progress. There's still it's such a it's such a new type of issue for people, you know, individuals, communities to confront that I think we're still kind of understanding how to best communicate those risks. And so, you know, while I would say, yeah, sure, we do, we do a good job, um, you know, especially me, I'm great. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it, it's one of those things where we do have these techniques. We are using them. We are refining them. Um, we're working with our in-house experts as well as people at the Yale Center for Climate Communication and at George Mason University, which has another great climate communication program. And we're constantly looking at the research they're putting out. We're sharing that with our partners and we're also, you know, internalizing that ourselves to think about what we're doing so that, like I said, it's not like we've cracked the riddle completely, but it's certainly something that we're still, you know, we're working really hard to untie the knots that have been created and hopefully make a more seamless line of communication when it comes to climate change. Well, I think just putting that down on paper is that you're, you're, you are thinking about cracking the riddle where I think there's a lot of groups that just assume that they're going to be able to do that. So I think that's encouraging. You're at least being strategic about it. Yeah, I mean, it's really important for us to, to realize that it's 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 a really important issue. It's one that, you know, we're going to have to solve one way or the other. And so in the ways that we can help expedite, the, you know, our transition to a clean energy future, to better adaptation, to more preparedness um, and resilience. Yeah, it's really it's important for us to get that get that right. And so when there are these techniques that are out there, these ideas out there that we can latch on to and use to you know help guide the conversation there, there's no reason why we wouldn't want to use that. Well, you, it looks like you guys collaborate with a lot of really high-profile people. I mean, have you worked with Dan Kahn? I think that's who it is out of – where is he at? Is he at Princeton or Yale? He's at Yale. Um, it, it, you know what I'm talking about with some of the research that he's come out with on the sort of psychology of climate change. I mean, I don't know how much you know about it, but it kind of fits into what you guys are attempting to do. Yeah, we've looked at his work. Um, we work really closely with the Center for Climate Change Communication, which is headed by Anthony Leiserwitz. And he's been, you know, a great resource for, you know, our programs that are for basically for a lot of our programs. I mean, as journalism, I think there's often this sort of feeling that you might want to go it alone and forge your own identity and, you know, you have a sense of best practices. Um, and certainly journalistically, there are, you know, these 
best practices out there that I, I and our other journalists on staff use. But there's also this wealth of other information about how to communicate climate change effectively that's not necessarily taught in journalism school and that you don't pick up in your average journalism job necessarily. And so, you know, having worked closely with him, um, with our other programs, I often refer to his work. I've emailed him on occasion to get some insights. And then I've also used our in-house experts here um, just to get a better sense of, you know, why it is. I've had a couple articles that I've had, one in particular earlier this year on the wildfires that struck in northern Canada, got really intense backlash. And for me, it was a total shock because it wasn't saying, you know, this is all climate change, but there was certainly, you know, there were ties that were fair to make, you know, say this is in line with current trends. The article got absolutely just hammered by a lot of angry people. Uh, and so for me, I was like, well, shoot, I thought I did a really good job at conveying the science, the state of the science and talking about, you know, these trends we can, we've seen and what we can expect in the future. It wasn't, you know, meant to blame anyone working in tar sands. It very much shied away from any politics of that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I really reached out to our social scientists and said, hey, you know, this got huge backlash and it's really given me pause for thought, like, you know, what did I do? Did I do anything wrong? And, you know, what can I do to make this so it doesn't happen next time to inspire more inclusive dialogue and, you know, actually spark some thinking about, well, what can we do to avoid this in the future rather than just being like, you you jerk, why'd you write this? Um, so, yeah, there's a really close collaboration. I think it's really important to keep those social science people, um, you know, close at hand because they really can help inform the journalism we do. Well, I, I guess on the positive side of that, though, is that you never quite are sure who's reading your pieces you hit publish. And so that the feedback, the people are out there reading it and, you know, the right people are reading it. So, I, you know, that's encouraging. You're, you're kind of resonating with the public that way. Yeah, I mean, it's important. I mean, not that, you know, my goal is not to inspire angry reactions. You know, <laughs> I don't I don't necessarily want that. Or if it's anger, I'd like people to translate that anger into taking actions, not towards me, but towards, you know, changing the status quo and you know, working to get low emissions policies put in place. But it is like when those provocations happen, it's like, all right, well, you know, our, our, we're definitely reaching an audience. And even if people are mad in the present, maybe it gets them to think down the road about these issues in ways they hadn't before. Now, I, I was looking at your staff page, and it's just a fascinating list of staffers and the, the diversity of roles and responsibilities that they have. And so You've alluded to it a little bit, but I mean, who really is your target audience at Climate Central? Uh, well, everybody. You know, um, <laughs> right. It's, you know, so it's a, we really are trying to reach people in the U.S., which is not to say that we don't have people outside the U.S. reading our stuff. But, you know, we have a, so there's a couple different audiences we're trying to reach, and we have a couple different ways of trying to get them. You know, the, when we're thinking the broad general public, you know, that's our journalism. And so the pieces we're publishing and that we see republished in The Guardian or Quartz or other sites um, with, you know, a little bigger reach than Climate Central. You know, our goal with our journalism is just is to reach the widest audience possible. And it's trying to do that through, you know, popular science writing and that kind of thing to convey, you know, climate change for a broad public. You know, we have a TV meteorologist program and that program deals with providing graphics to local TV meteorologists. So people working in markets as big as New York and as, you know, small as Paducah, Kentucky. So that program is really aimed at catching TV viewers and people that watch the nightly news, which tend to skew, you know, older. Um, it's a slightly different demographic than that's probably reading our site. And it's, again, you know, a pretty large cross-section of America. It's not like there's, you know, one ideology or one type of person that watches the TV news. And so, but it, like I said, it tends to skew a little bit older and it's a slightly different audience than what you're going to get on a website. You know, that's geared again with like the other thing is that older folks also tend to vote a little bit more than younger people. And so there's a certain value in reaching those people with climate information to get them thinking about that when they're making their choices at the ballot box. Um, not that we're saying, you know, vote this way or vote that way. Just, you know, here's the reality of climate change in your neck of the woods. So, yeah, you know, there's a couple different audiences we're trying to reach. And then with our science research that goes on. I mean, that's actively geared towards policymakers and getting them to consider what the best science says about what's going to happen in their neighborhoods or their communities, their towns, their states, whatever level they're at, um, to make the best choices possible for the people that live there. Well, I know I might get a chance to talk about meteorology at Climate Central at a l later time, but I, I find that fascinating because, you know, when I watch local weather reports, it's so highly choreographed. And the idea that they would insert like some additional really interesting information that you guys provide, that's great. And I guess there are some particular markets that do that. But 
uh, I'm sure you probably have to knock on some doors to sort of say, hey, these are resources you can use. But, uh, yeah, I watched the D.C. market, and it's it's just so highly choreographed. It's like any additional information is very tough to get in there. Yeah, it's a really – I mean, that's a totally different realm from where, where I operate. I've never been a TV news person, uh, but from the people we have on staff that run that program are both former on-air meteorologists, and they speak to this all the time about – how can what are the challenges in fitting in even a 30 second, even 10 seconds of climate change in what's a very finite amount of time when you're doing your weather cast and the average person is tuning in just to know whether it's going to rain or not the next day or on their weekend. But so, you know, that's one of the beauties of having two meteorologists run this program is that they understand the ties between climate change and local weather. And they understand, you know, the types of graphics and things that can be slid into your average weather report. So, you know, there, it's not an easy thing, and it's not that we have every meteorologist that we send graphics to pick up our graphics every single week. But, you know, we've certainly found that people do find ways to get them in, especially if they're interesting. You know, one of our folks we work with in Arizona was really excited. We did a graphic on climate change and the impact on beer, um, and she was like, this is perfect for my audience. And so we did a whole segment around it, which, yeah, I mean, and that's perfect for me, too. I'm like, I'd really like to know what's going to happen to my beer in the future. So, you know, we try to get things that people actually find interesting, both in terms of their local climate, but also the things they care about, whether it's, you know, beer, mosquitoes, poison ivy. In those cases, they may be things that people care about in the sense that they don't want them around. So um, really, it's about getting graphics that make sense in the context of the nightly news and in terms of human interest in local markets. And it's like I said, it's a work in progress, but it's the program itself has grown from just a handful of people to think at last count, um, about 300 meteorologists around the U.S. And we even have a couple people around the world that use our graphics on occasion. So it'll show up in Bulgaria or the Philippines every now and then, which is pretty amazing. Okay, just so when people walk away from this podcast, they, they don't, Climate Central just isn't about talking about the future of beer. It's more than that, though. That's right. It's, you don't want to leave that message. That's correct. Yeah, we do a little more of the future of beer. That's an important part of it, but there's right. definitely some bigger issues afoot to, you know, the existence of humanity and communities and all that stuff. So beer, one one aspect of uh, many changes afoot. It's, it's a tactic. I get it. So it, a little bit more about your staff. I'm curious. I think some of you guys are located at different places in the United States. And so, you know, what's a staff meeting like? You know, you have scientists, but then you have journalists like yourself. And then, you you know, you have other people in the organization. Do you uh, try to get together with everyone and kind of integrate? I mean, is that how you operate? Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, these, so we have our, you know, weekly or sorry, monthly staff meetings, and that's a chance for everyone that's in our main office in Princeton to be there together and the folks that work in our various locations, which range from, you know, New York to Colorado to Boston to Asheville, North Carolina, um, to call in and sort of be part of that community. And then, you know, between, honestly, one thing that really helps us stay together is we use Slack at our office and Slack has been an amazing resource, especially for me to be able to chat instantly with anyone on our staff. And, you know, for anyone that's listening that maybe not is, is uh, not familiar with Slack, it's basically just a it's chat software to make life easy. And it's a great way to collaborate. So we've been able to keep collaborations going that way, too, by just being able to chat and files back and forth. You know, if we sometimes it's just nice to catch up with your coworkers and ask how they're doing. Um, so that's the sort of way that we stay, make sure that this organization that does a lot of different things that does have people scattered across the country and, you know, working on the, all these different programs basically stays connected and that we're all kind of aware of what each other are doing and ways where we can potentially get involved. So, you know, if, like I said, there's a TV graphic coming out that's on climate and beer or whatever, and we want to run it on the website, we can do that. Um, and we know where to find the people that are in charge of that. Well, so how long have you been at Climate Central? I've been there just over three years. I started um, in July three years ago. So it feels like uh, both a long time ago and just yesterday all at once. Well, so I I guess just that's a nice pivot to talk about what your role is at Climate Central. And so you're a, a senior s science writer for Climate Central. And so what I kind of want to get at is like, you know, how often are you producing material? And, well, you know, what do you decide to publish? And just I guess the, the whole – you know, how you do your job. Yeah, well, um, I mean, for me, I guess, how do I do my job? Uh, <laughs> definitely keep busy. Um, you know, my goal is to, I, as far as our reporters go, um, there's four of us on staff. And for me, I guess I kind of fit the, the niche of not having a niche. I'm more of our, one of our general generalist journalists. So that, you know, really runs the gauntlet means that I kind of cover what I find interesting and 
you know, for me, my background is in climate science and policy, um, just from an academic standpoint. And, you know, if you want to go back to my bachelor's degree, like my background is in anthropology and photography. So I have a really big interest in the arts. Um, what got me into the climate was actually I was a big skier in my 20s and still am to a degree, although I find less and less time to actually get out in the hill. But, you know, like being outside is a big part of it's something I really care about. So these are issues that really matter to me. And so I have faith that, you know, at least a chunk of my audience is interested in them as well and try to cover those things, which, you know, this summer I did an entire series on national parks and climate change, um, which was really near and dear to my heart. Recently, you know, some stories I've covered have looked at how scientists turn data into music to communicate the you know, what their findings actually say in language most people understand. So, you know, my reporting really runs the gauntlet. As far as how often, you know, I'm writing, I try to produce anywhere between three and five or six stories a week, keeping an eye on both, you know, big findings in academic journals or announcements about what the global average temperature is, as well as these more niche topics that are kind of a little bit offbeat. And then, you know, recently with the presidential election, even though we're not partisan or political or any of that stuff, we've covered, you know, a little bit of how, the debates have gone, whether um, what kind of climate questions we should be asking the next president, no matter who it is, um, these kinds of things. So, yeah, that's kind of my goal is to basically cover things that I think are interesting to me, um, things that I think, well, you know, like would I want to share this with my friends on Facebook or would my, you know, I'm not going to share with their friends on Facebook if that that's kind of one of my litmus tests for tests for whether um, I write a story or not is would someone want to share this on Facebook? And if they did, what would they say about it? And if I could think of, you know, clear reason why and think of, you know, why that their friends would want to like it or read it, then I generally move forward with the story um, from there. So I made a list of some of your headlines and, you know, it, it is good. I think you I don't know if you make the headlines or if you have an editor that does it. But uh, I make the headlines. So uh, hopefully you like them. <laughs> right. Well, that then they've empowered you. And that's a good thing because, you know, you know how it is. The headline gets them in. It's all about the headline. And so uh, this is what it's like to be a young climate scientist. Hottest months on record have something common. Okay, fine. Here's the carbon dioxide spiral and then the uncertain, hopeful future of the National Park Service. So it seems like you do a mix of like there's timely news like, you know, that the 400 parts per million, you know, that got quite a bit of traction for a week or two there. And you know, you spoke up on it. So you're, I guess you're dealing with very timely news, but then you have an opportunity to do more of those feature pieces like the National Park Service. Yeah, and that's how we all, I mean, you know, every, well, I don't know if every writer, but a lot of writers, you know, you dream about writing the features and, you know, getting these two, 3,000 words to write some grand thing and you have, you know, months to research a topic. And luckily, you know, that was my summer. Like I got to do that all summer. It was basically just be on this national park beat and, you know, write a half dozen stories on what is going on with the National Park Service and climate change. But, you know, ultimately, you also it's kind of balancing that need of, you know, feeding your soul and writing these big stories and also, you know, being sure that you're also covering the daily news and talking about things that people are talking about on a daily basis as well. Um, you know, that carbon dioxide hitting 400 parts per million, that was actually, you know, something that we, I think, were the first to write that story, essentially. And from there, it kind of blew up. But again, it was like seeing that it was like, I knew that was going to be a big story. People were going to talk about that. I mean, it's such a big milestone in climate people's minds, and it does have this kind of grand, like, whoa, we really crossed a threshold idea. Um, it's just, it was, a, it was such a no-brainer to cover. And, you know, lo and behold, it, it ended up being a huge conversation start for us, both on our website as well as on Facebook and Twitter, where we've been, you know, sharing those things as well to make sure, just to, it's a good way to gauge people's reactions and, also, obviously, to make sure, you know, we know what stories are hitting. And that one in particular was, I think, you know, as of yesterday, I think uh, it was still our most popular Facebook share of the year. So it's definitely it's it drove a lot of traffic, drove a lot of discussions and, you know, makes it clear that, like I said, as much as for a writer, it's really validating to write these big features. There's also a reality that the daily things can be really important, too, and they can help sort of keep that conversation going. So people actually have an interest in those big features as well. Well, yeah, I guess I didn't realize that you were such an uh, original source for that. I mean, I, I saw it like Huffington Post and then, you know, the Environmental News Network and all those different places. And so, yeah, I mean, talk about <laughs> penetration of a story. That's fabulous. Yeah, it was a trip. I mean, I got to say, like when I so, you know, I wrote the story, we published it and you know, I could just see it was going to be like a thing. And then the next day, you know, I woke up and looked at Facebook and checked the trending news sidebar and carbon dioxide was trending in the sidebar. I was like wow, like this is, this is legit. I mean, that's, you know, it was a validation. It was like, I knew it was a good story. I knew it needed to be written. 
And then to see it like as one of the top trending items on Facebook, you know, with this big platform of more than a billion users, it was like, wow, people actually do care. People are reacting to this. Um, it is a big story that we, you know, uh, it was good. It was like people are actually paying attention. So that's great. <laughs> Well, and I, I know you must struggle over this, and I'm sure Climate Central's that I think about that story, and it, it, again, it just caught fire, but in certain orbits. But, you know, you walk into the laundromat, and you ask the next person over, it's like, what do you think of 400 parts per million? And you'd probably get a blank look. <laughs> and it's like, what does it take to kind of get that, you know, super penetration? And you think of the stories that, you know, just catch fire, that even an average person could – they're aware enough that they know a headline at least. And it's, yeah, that that's a challenge. It is a challenge. And, you know, I think it just gets back, like those are the stories. And when it comes to communicating climate change, I mean, there's a spectrum of people, of, of audiences, right? And there's the really alarm spectrum. And, you know, they're a small but really important uh, part of the whole communication spectrum to me because they, they sort of can drive traffic. They can drive conversation. You can write pieces for them that reinforce their viewpoints and sort of get them more entrenched to hopefully do things about it. And so those people, yeah, you know, the 400 parts per million story, I have no doubt, reached them loud and clear. And they were very loud and clear about sharing it with the people that they know to make sure they understood the, the reality of it. Um, but then you do have that sort of, I guess, more middle end of the spectrum where climate change is a thing. They think it's happening. It's probably caused by humans. But they maybe are less engaged and don't, you know, they're not reading the daily, they're not going to Climate Central every day to read about what the latest climate news is. And that's where a piece like when you're writing about national parks, you're writing about, you know, climate change and beer, things that people care about. That's when I think, you know, those are the kinds of stories to me that are important to reach a different type of audience. Like I can feed the the far end of the audience, you know, great stories because there's tough, you know, unfortunate climate news almost every month about 400 parts per million or the hottest month on record or, you know, in just yesterday, some really bad findings about what's happening to Antarctica's ice sheets. These are things that these, these bad pieces of news are pretty commonplace. And so they're pretty easy to push out to that audience. But it's these pieces about, you know, the more subtle impacts and the impacts on things that people care about um, that are in the more middle end of that spectrum they think are really important. And even if they don't get the same amount of page views, they have the potential to have, I mean, I would hope at least, a greater chance to kind of exact change and get people thinking, um, you know, in critical ways about climate. You know, as you were going through that list of like climate change impacts, ice sheets melting and stuff, it, I, I have, you know, a joke with some of my guests that we're like radioactive people at like, you know, happy hours or cocktail parties. People just don't want to saddle up next to us. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we talk about. I know, I know. And it's so tough because I, I also, I, you know, I really do struggle with that because I, I, it's, there's no shortage of bad climate news, it seems like. At the same time, there are really, hopeful things. And you know, one thing I found is that sometimes those hopeful things don't resonate as much with our, with our audience. And, you know, for better or worse, I mean that I don't, I, there's a couple different reasons that could be happening for better or worse. You know, that is sometimes the case, but I don't think that that's a good argument to not write the good news stories, you know, just like the ice sheets yesterday, bad news. Right. Um, in addition though, there was some good news that renewable energy forecasts have increased and that we're looking at a greater percentage of the world economy being powered by renewables now and the forecast for the future is looking better than ever. Like that's really good news. And that makes, you know, that gives me the sort of strength to soldier on like, all right, cool. Like we can do this. And so even if those stories aren't having the broadest reach of these like kind of really more catastrophic news things um, or news items, that's, you know, okay. Cause those stories still, I think have the power, like these positive stories still have the power to move the dial and to get people thinking like climate change is not an unsolvable problem. Well, you know, the, the whole point of this podcast is supposed to be more hopeful. You know, America adapts. We're adapting to climate change. And so I, I try to avoid to be too cynical on, on the podcast. And the guests that I have on are, are doing all sorts of cool things. So I, I appreciate that. And on that note, I, I think I shared with you the, the review of the podcast from the AV Club, which is this pop culture site. And both times I've read his review and I'm just like, why can't I write like that? He's like capturing what I'm trying to do with the podcast in such a better way. And so, yeah, I think the the need to be more positive, even under such urgent situations, is, is just very necessary. Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to be, especially because, you know, and I think what you're doing here is great, like having people that are actually doing things. I mean, it's really easy to be caught in a funk and stuck in paralysis when you think about this global problem of climate change and you're being only one person. But I think that, you know, we all need to push past that. And so highlighting people that are that are able to push past that and say, you know, what's the one thing I can do? 
um, or what's, you know, a couple things I can do in some cases, um, you know, that's a really, that's a powerful thing. Cause I think that every person has that in them, that one thing that, you know, five things, whatever it is, like we can all do something about this and, you know, highlighting that is, I think what's ultimately going to be the thing that turns the tide and actually does see collective action on climate change happen. Well, uh, just a couple more questions on your, your National Park Service piece. And so uh, I I was reading the interview with John Jarvis, but how many total pieces did you do out of that? So we have six pieces. There's a Well, there's a sixth one in production right now um, in edits. So if my editor's listening, hopefully he's seriously editing that as we speak. Um, and that'll be actually on climate change communication in parks. So that'll kind of cap the series. So, you know, six that looked at both you know, these broad issues within the park service, like climate communication across parks, and then looked at what specific parks are doing, like the New York Harbor parks, to deal with climate change impacts. Well, we were introduced by someone from the park service, and I don't know if he noted, I mean, I was with the climate change response program for for a bit, so very familiar with what the park service is doing. I really enjoyed your interview with John Jarvis. Whenever I was at a meeting with John Jarvis, I was always amazed that, you know, all of us were hired there to talk about climate change, but he was above and beyond the best spokesperson on the issue. I just sit there. He can just pull these things out of his <laughs> ear. And so, I mean, did, what, your, and, and your interview was quite good. And I think some of the things that he revealed was like, gosh, I can't believe he said that. I mean, so did, what, what was your impression after you kind of got done that interview? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was, I was really blown away. I'm a big – I'm really impressed with the way he's able to both – you know, communicate about it from a scientific standpoint, from a personal standpoint, and a political standpoint. Um, he's clearly, I think, been, and, you know, I will say that talking every, almost to a T, every person I talked to at the National Park Service was like, basically was like, you know, we have a leader on this, and that is changing how this agency deals with climate change almost single-handedly. Um, you know, he's a huge driver for change and inspiration to people within that organization that want to see the park service become you know more resilient to climate change and to make sure that these special places are there for future generations and that you know if they change that they change in ways that we can understand and prepare for and hopefully communicate clearly to the public about why they've changed so you know it wasn't just talking with him was like whoa this guy gets it um but then talking with the people on you know his staff throughout the park service system it's clear that they got that he gets it and we're totally on board to make sure that things he was saying in his vision for a climate resilient national park service in the next century became reality. Well, I'm curious in your travels with the national park service, did you come across any skeptics? You know, uh, within the park service, I can't think of a single person I talked to. I talked to a lot of people though. So maybe there's some notes hidden somewhere in the back of a, you know, a journal or a Google doc that have that, but I didn't come across anyone that wasn't on board. And again, maybe that's partly self-selecting because I wanted to talk with people that were really gung-ho about climate. But it definitely seemed like, like I said, everyone I talked to was not just, you know, like, yeah, climate change is happening. It's a thing. They seemed like, you know, it's happening. It's a thing. And we got to do something about it. And, you know, here's what we're already doing and here's what we're planning to do. So people, like I said, across the agency were very much invested in seeing the agency prepared for what was, you know, in the pipeline. Oh, they're out there. Trust I, I, I don't doubt it. I'm sure there's a few. And, uh, you know, I guess, you know, if they want to call me, I could write a story about them. Uh, well, no, or, they don't. They don't want to call you because I think they recognize the sort of the atmosphere of like, all right, we're going to do something on climate change. But I mean, you'd have interpreter officers, skeptics or just don't want to talk about it. It was it was because the climate change program at the National Park Service, you probably picked up on is I mean, it's a service wide program. So it's up to individual parks to decide if they're really going to do climate change planning. And the, the climate change program was just there to provide resources. And so anyway, it's uh, the National Park Service should be commended because compared to a lot of federal agencies, they're doing some amazing things. But it's it's still out there. That's skepticism. You know, I wonder it's, it's interesting to say because, you know, as part of my my previous life, I was a seasonal interpreter at Crater Lake National Park um, for you know a number of years. I was cool. kind of like the, the giants. I did an even year thing. So it was 2006, 2008. And then I spent a little bit of a longer stint there in 2010 and. You know, to be there um, and see what it was like across administrations from the Bush administration to the Obama administration was really interesting. There was definitely a a lot of like in 2006 and to a degree 2008, like, eh, I don't know if we should be talking about this. And then by 2010, it was a really it was a totally different climate. I was shocked to come back in, you know, with Crater Lake and to hear how we were highlighting climate change. And we had a couple really great interpreters that were champions of climate change in the park. Um, and talking about it really openly. So I think that, you know, it was it was a bit of a, 
a sea change. Maybe it's still a little bit slow at some parks compared to others. Um, but I think that that's you know, one of the things that's really helped make climate change mainstream in some parks, at least, is obviously you have champions there that really want want to be a focal point of what is either being interpreted or what's being prepared for in the future um, as far as adaptation goes. Well, it's great to have the guy at the top being such a proponent, but I, I don't think the public appreciates how autonomous a lot of the parks are, and that, that'll reflect. Are they actually thinking about climate change? So. Yeah, I mean, I will. I, I won't. Well, let's see. I, I, probably, I probably won't name names, especially because I didn't write any stories about uh, some of these parks. But I did get a hint. A couple outside organizations I talked with were a little bit iffy on a few parks, and were like, "Yeah, they need to come around sooner than later. They, they're a little bit slow on the uptake." So, um, yeah, it is interesting. Like, there are definitely these climate champion parks out there. Um, you know, the Harbor Parks and Everglades. It seems like most coastal parks, because they're dealing full on with climate impacts right now, are pretty ahead of the curve. Um, but yeah, there were definitely a few, like I said, speaking with outside folks from outside the park service, there are a few parks that came up a few times as being like, well, they should probably pick up the pace and get there sooner than later um, because they're going to have to. Well, on that note, I want to commend the National Park Service. So they are doing some amazing things. And I, and I really did enjoy your, your interview. And I, I think I read one of your original pieces. This is way before I was even doing the podcast. And so, uh, yeah, just congratulations on that. I think it was just a, a great, you know, service to kind of share that. So. Thanks. Well, I'm glad you liked it, and uh, hopefully you like the, the one last piece that comes out when it does. <laughs> There's a few more topics I want to cover here, and just quickly is, you know, one of my previous guests, She she's a disasterologist and so deals with emergency management, but she calls herself disasterologist, which I think is a great name, gets, gets to the point. And we talked a bit about how the media handled the, you know, I don't even know what they're officially calling it, but, the, you know, the Louisiana rain event, remember? Oh, yeah, yep. And so I don't, how much did Climate Central jump on that? Because it, as it unfolded, it was so weird. Even before it was over, people were sort of making links to climate change, but then they weren't. And then people were sort of already moving on. And the event wasn't even over yet. It was just like the weirdest story. And I'm just curious how Climate Central, you know, what how you covered it. Yeah, I mean, we covered it pretty extensively um, just because it was just it was mind blowing the amount of rain that fell over that, uh, you know, whatever it was, but a week long period, it was really, really a crazy rainfall event and obviously a crazy human disaster in part. And that's the thing is, I mean, we have to acknowledge that, you know, not everything is always climate change hundred percent. Like there's certain factors about, you know, building codes and floodplains and things like that in Louisiana or any other local place that also can help either mitigate or drive disasters to higher heights um, when it comes to, you know, something that's weather related. So there's a certain level of human resiliency on the ground that really matters um, as much as what's happening when it rains from the sky. So, you know, we did cover it um, and looked at a couple of those aspects. And then we also, you know, it's funny, I've, I've talked about a couple of our science programs and neglected to mention our newest one, which is this World Weather Attribution Program, which basically does attribution of extreme events. So they you know, run computer models to look at how climate change may or may not have increased the odds of extreme events. I do not have the results sitting in front of me right now, so I can't say off the top of my head what they said, but we definitely did do one for Louisiana and for the flooding um, to look at how climate change might have influenced that. So, you know, in theory, these these attribution studies we do have a couple goals. You know, one is to inform policymakers to say this is how the odds of extreme events have increased in your area. And then the other is also to drive public awareness to show that, you know, in real time, essentially, these analysis, they don't come out months later. They come out in real time or within a week or two of the event, which is as close to real time as you can get. And basically say, you know, like there was a climate influence and in some cases there's not one. And that's OK. We talk about how climate change didn't influence this, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be prepared for more extreme weather in the future. Um, so, you know, we did take that as a pretty serious, obvious event of national importance to cover. And then our attribution team latched onto it and decided that it was so important that we needed to do an attribution analysis to look at the role that climate change may have played in causing that rainfall event. Right. It just seemed like a perfect opportunity for, yeah, that kind of t test, you know, case study for you guys. You're, you're, you're trying to communicate this issue that has this future influence, but there's still things happening now. And, you know, this unfolded today in real time. And so, yeah, I'm sure just uh, not that you want to take advantage of a disaster, but it's just an opportunity to kind of figure out how do we kind of inform in this situation. Yeah. And I would never say, I mean, you know, our goal is, like you said, it's never to take advantage of a disaster and it's not to, you know, none of what we write or what we want to communicate takes away from reality that people are really, have really suffered from, you know, this rainfall event, the wildfires in Alberta, like 
people are severely impacted. And that is like priority number one for us to, to get across is that these events have real world impacts and we really sympathize with those people. And writing a story about it does not mean that we don't by any stretch of the imagination. But really it is a chance to sort of, you know, talk about, I mean, what we know, what we've seen in the trends in rain, heavy rainfall events, what we've seen in the trends in wildfires, um, and then in the case of the Louisiana rains, you know, we did this attribution analysis. And I think that having it a couple weeks removed from when the rainfall event happened after the floods had subsided helped sort of it helps, you know, get rid of that perception that we were, you know, ambulance chasing, for lack of a better term, um, that we were really trying to cash in on this because we weren't. That's not the point. The point is to simply give people the information, understand the context of what's happening in our world. And that, yeah, climate change is not a 2000, uh, you know, a 2100 problem. It's a 2016 problem. And we should be thinking about it now. So I want to do a bit of a major pivot here, but this is more about getting your professional opinion. So you're you're obviously familiar with the National Climate Assessment, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes people just haven't heard of it. Even people who have been in the business for 10 years, which is part of the problem. That's what I want to bring up. And so the National Climate Assessment, for people who don't know, and please correct me if I'm describing it wrong, but it's just this national report that Congress has mandated is put out. I think it's every five years or seven years that they have to come out, and it's the equivalent of the IPCC, but done for the United States. And so it's really grown. It's this big report that's talking about the state of the science, but it's now you know kind of evolved. And it's including like adaptation and how it's going to impact sectors. And so is that sort of a quick, accurate description? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay. All right. And so my point of this like conversation with you is that I've dealt with the National Climate Assessment in, in different roles, and I'm always amazed how few people understand what it is or are using it. And for those people who are involved in the National Climate Assessment, incredible people, they write this report, they gather everyone, they even have the engagement teams to try to get the information out when the report comes out. And so the reason I'm bringing it up with you, and I kind of look at Climate Central, and, and I look at your mission, and, and to me, you're almost like what the National Climate Assessment would be if it was a, like a nonprofit working on a day-to-day -day basis, you know? It's it's like you, you've got the science, you're trying to get it out there, but i just curious your opinions, and I know this is not official Climate Central opinion, but it's just... What could the National Climate Assessment be doing better? And I, I think the Climate Central model, that there, there's some use there. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I mean, so I'll say this about the, the most recent National Climate Assessment. One thing they did that was really great is they they had the report, a physical, you know, PDF slash, you know, pick it up at your local uh, government agency report. But they also had a really nice website. Their website was, for this National Climate Assessment, was beautiful. It was well done. Um, it was the graphics were easy to look at. It was laid out well. And it was a really, I think it was a, you know, it's funny because I'm like, oh, well, you know, that's what everyone aims for nowadays. But it was nice to see that um, in the context of the, the national climate assessment, because I think, you know, with government agencies, there can be some entropy embracing web technology has been a little bit slower compared to, to some of the other, you know, just nonprofits or for-profit companies, journalism sites in the world. Um, so seeing the National Climate Assessment in this, like, beautiful, nice website was like, yes, you got it. We're headed in the right direction. And I actually, you know, I wrote a story about it, the website itself, when it came out because I thought it was just so good. Um, so I think that there's there is sort of hope for the future that even though these reports may take years to produce – the people currently running the show there have this vision for making it accessible in a way that makes sense in the current context of how we consume information. Uh, you know, in terms of what we do at Climate Central and how that might tie in, I do think that there's a lot of value in being able to have a site that you can update in real time. And I think that that's sort of the next, to me, I mean, the val I mean, I understand that there's a need for a foundational assessment that serves as a snapshot of like, this is where the science was at when this report was published. Um, there's a certain, there is, a lot of value in that. And we refer to the National Climate Assessment, I mean, all the time for facts, figures, numbers, whatever it is. But there is also really an important value to say that, you know, at a certain point, that document becomes dated, especially if you're waiting, you know, four to seven years to publish the next iteration. And there's a lot of relevant science that matters in between. And so, you know, to me, the next step for the National Climate Assessment, something that, you know, we kind of view what we do at Climate Central, how we view what we do at Climate Central is doing is sort of creating a living document sort of that grows as new research comes in that updates, you know, and we link back to stories, say, you know, there used to be this estimate for sea level rise and now it's this according to the study and here's why, you know, being able to write those daily news stories, publish new content, do new reports, build on the knowledge we have is kind of a way to make sure that, you know, it shows 
what we used to have, where we're at now. It shows progression. And, in, you know, in some ways it shows what the best available science is at any given moment for, you know, any given climate indicator, or climate, you know, adaptation question that you might have to ask a question about. So, yeah, there's certain, I think, like I said, there's a value in these snapshot assessments, but there's also a lot of value in having the chance to make the, to a living assessment that grows with the knowledge, body of knowledge that we have. Well, and I think the team that they have there is trying to do that. But, um, you know, with any report the day after it's been released, it's like, okay, it's already dated. All right. It's, it's dead. It's already gone. And, you know, just between you and me, don't share this with anyone. Okay, but, it's our secret. <laughs> don't, you cannot tell anyone this, but when I mean, when I was at the Park Service, they weren't necessarily even using the National Climate Assessment, and that's true, I think, for other bureaus within the Department of Interior. It just there's it, the, not that the science wasn't good; it's just like the 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 form that it took, or just it wasn't relevant in the context of maybe some of the like a vulnerability assessment that's being done, and so. When I would hear these things, I'm like, holy crap, this monumental effort went into this assessment and it's just it's not really being used properly. Something's wrong there. And, you know, and I think probably the biggest criticism, like, let's say the sea level rise models, everybody sort of was like, no, they're too conservative. We don't want to use that in any of our planning. It's too conservative because, you know, it's instantly dated and they try to take the most conservative number they can because they think that's what they're supposed to do. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that is the danger of those kind of assessments. And like I, like I said, we use it, like we'll publish because it is sort of a gold standard, and particularly when you're trying to communicate you know, with the public. And for our TV meteorologist program, we use NCA numbers a lot. And we, or, you know, at least we use them as like a baseline to start with. And I think that's because you know, when you're trying to build trust with the public, it's important to have at least a little bit of a voice of authority behind it. I can totally, and you know, the flip of that though, is that when you're actually trying to make plans, um, when you have different goals in mind, then if you're using numbers that are too conservative, it's totally makes sense for why, you know, a document like that is not necessarily useful, um, especially if you're really focused. I mean, it's the extreme events and extreme situations that drive the most damage and create the most problems, right? So there's a total value, I think, in the assessment in terms of building some kind of trust and having this foundation to build upon. But then when it comes to making decisions, um, you know, is it the best document to have? Like it probably isn't. There's probably some kind of happier medium um, and, you know, newer research that's worth looking at and actually using to make decisions that are relevant. So, yeah, it's a two, I guess to me, it's a two tiered kind of approach um, in terms of its value. All right. I don't. I want to leave this part of the conversation, but I think the National Climate Assessment is an incredibly valuable thing, and I don't want to diss these people. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's more frustration that this all this effort, like it could be better utilized. So the last thing I want to talk about, Brian, is you know this podcast is all about adaptation, and so Climate Central. There, there's so much within the website and what you guys are doing that's relevant to adaptation, but I'm so, it. My sense isn't. It's not like a priority for you guys, and I. Part of it, I think, is just semantics, but I think some of the tools, you know, you have a sea level rise tool right now, and the adaptation professional should be like a, like a real strong target audience for you guys, but it doesn't quite seem like that, and you know, I think you've even talked about that, and I'm just curious that, and interchangeably, adaptation resilience, that's a whole different issue, but I'm just curious if there was sort of a conscious reason that, okay, we're not there as an adaptation website. I mean, just I'm curious your thoughts, or if, do I have this completely wrong? <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, we don't necessarily bill ourselves as like a, a one-stop shop. I mean, that's, and I, I, you know, that's, that, that would be a big, I mean, that shop is a shop that would, you know, have to exist almost on its own in some ways for each individual type of effort we're talking about, whether it's, you know, sea level rise and coastal communities, inland communities and water supplies. I mean, these are big issues that, you know, we're, the way the organization is set up is not, it's not meant to be a one-stop shop for those things, but it's also you know, it's not to say that we don't provide resources to people when they want them. And so, you know, going looking at the Silverize group, for example, you know, they do, they have this risk viewer. You can look at, you know, a number of different factors. They're always adding functionality to it to make sure that it is something that decision makers might be interested in. So you can change, you can look at Silverize at, you know, the block level almost. Um, you can look at it by congressional district or by county district. And that's by design because people make decisions at those levels. And then, they, like I said, it's even if the information that's on the site is sort of just it's step one. And from there, there are a lot of steps that we can take after that to talk with people about impacts in local places. And in a lot of cases, I mean, there's acknowledgement that, you know, it's similar to the National Climate Assessment. Right? Like you have an idea of what you want to do. You have an idea of what the important questions are. Um, and the reality is that, you know, from a high level, you may see them as one thing. And from a local level, they may be totally different. 
And so rather than answering all the questions that we think are important right up front, um, a lot of times we'll work with local places to see what questions, what are the important questions they have to ask. And then, you know, when it regards to Silverize, we can sort of tailor the results in our analysis to help them see, to find the answers to those questions. So, yeah, you know, it's, I think it's, it's a bit of a more of a, a build it on a case by case basis. So even if it doesn't seem like we are upfront, this big adaptation group that does all this stuff, you know, we do do something on, we do do some things on a local level that are maybe a little more behind the scenes. You know, the flip of that is we could probably also do more. And so if you have ideas, uh, you know, feel free to pitch them and maybe we'll, uh, we'll pick them up. Well, Okay, I'm going to pitch some ideas. Um, and so I probably don't know all the things that Climate Central does, but it just it seems that you know when you you produce your stories or the science that you're working on, and this is like climate impacts and the climate science. It's like so an end user, you might have a listener that's like, oh, that's interesting and that's disturbing, and now I have a greater awareness, but I'm really not going to do much with that. But you know the the adaptation universe, which is just so, I mean, it's growing so quickly. It's just like. Some of them, you know, they do their jobs really well, but maybe they aren't necessarily able to tie like, okay, here's a climate impact and here's the story that's coming out of Climate Central. And so how does that resonate into my local community and how I need to do my jobs? And I think there is a little bit of a disconnect with a lot of the adaptation people of like the larger issues of the climate impacts versus what they really need to be doing. And so, I mean, I think that's coming and I, you know, organizations like yours helps fill in some of those gaps, but it, you know, just maybe there is an adaptation section within climate central because I just think it's such a growth industry for the whole climate change universe that, you know, you're there providing resources. And so just connect the dots for people that don't necessarily know how to connect those dots. Yeah, and it's definitely, I mean, sort of what you got to, it's a growth industry. I mean, and in so many ways, it's, I mean, you know, maybe it's been around for a while, but it's really something that still has yet to even come close to reaching its full peak potential. And I think that, you know, in some ways we're at the ground floor. In some ways, you know, I think that we'll probably in the future be thinking about how we can grow to, to provide those kinds of services to people. It's sort of, it's an audience that, even if it's not our specific, you know, one and only target audience, I think, like you said, it's something that's going to grow. And ultimately, where the rubber hits the road when it comes to climate adaptation is what, you know, it's going to matter to prepare people for what comes next. And so there's a lot of value in supporting those people. Um, you know, I'm probably not the person to make the choices about how we would go about doing that. But there's definitely, I think, you know, within the organization, there's there are thoughts about that. And there are inklings of how we're already starting to do that. And I'm sure, you know, look at come back and chat, you know, five years down the road. Um, there's going to be some new and interesting developments that we're going to be able to point to and say, hey, look what look what's happened since, you know, our last chat. Well, I represent that adaptation universe, and here you are as an ambassador on the podcast, so thank you. Hey, happy to be here. <laughs> so, you know, I, I do want to wrap this up relatively soon, but I had the last couple of questions just like, you know, what are some of your favorite climate change websites? And, you know, they could be fun sites or they could be more technical. I'm just, you know, people love to hear what other people are kind of reading. Oh man, one of my favorite climate change websites. That's a that's a great question. Um, well, you know, so a couple of places that when it comes to you know science communication, those kinds of things. I mean, a couple of places I think are doing a really great job on it are Bloomberg. They have an amazing editorial staff, but also an amazing graphics staff, and they've made some spectacular. I mean, like amazing graphics. Um, we actually have a story coming up in the nearish future about about climate graphics. Uh, I'll say no more, just that you have to check Climate Central every day to find it and see when it comes out. But, uh, you know, they've done some really impressive work to communicate just some of the base levels of, of climate change, like what's warming the world. Um, and so I'm just continually impressed by the work they're doing. Uh, in terms of you know, individual writers, too, that really stand out to me, I love reading Eric Holthouse's work. Elizabeth Colbert is amazing and just published this absolutely just freaking spectacular piece on Greenland and research and life up there and adaptation. I mean, it just hits so many high points for me and the New Yorker. So I would say that if you or your listeners have not read that, um, definitely go seek it out because it, it just really, yeah, it was something that I aspire to write like. So uh, mission accomplished, Elizabeth Colbert. And then, you know, when I'm looking for just climate information, if I need to get some, you know, basics that are on our site, I mean, I always find knowsclimate.gov really helpful. It's such a good reference of both, you know, science tools that are available and then also just, um, you know, just some of the basics like, you know, facts and figures about climate change. I'm like, oh, how much has have seas risen? Right. Check. Like, got it. And then, sorry, there's actually, I just hit me. There's one other place I'd really mention that's done some, some cool work on climate recently. And, um, you know, it's Vice News. I really like the work they've done on their weekly HBO show. They just launched a nightly news show and, 
you know, their climate correspondent has covered some really interesting stuff so far. So I'm pretty excited to see a big organization like Vice and, you know, ditto for a place like Bloomberg to pick up climate and really run with it and communicate in ways that are, you know, communicate with general audiences, popular science audiences, people that might not be thinking about climate all the time, but to really make it climate a priority in their coverage is really heartening for me to see. So, um, you know, those are just a few of my favorites. I'm sure I've missed like at least a dozen others. So uh, there's a there's a lot of good stuff going on in the climate communication world right now, which makes me happy to be a part of it. Well, I, I'd like to include all this kind of information on the show notes, and so I'll include these websites. And if there's other ones that you have to recommend, I'll include those too. And, you know, it, it, you reminded me, I just read this review of that Before the Flood, you know, the new Leo DiCaprio um, climate change movie that's coming out? Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a review in Slant Magazine, which is just like some pop culture magazine. I'd never heard of it before, but the reviewer, I mean, this guy was on when it came to climate change, and he was very critical of the documentary, and most of the coverage has been very positive, but like his insight on like what's happening with climate change. And anyway, some of the pop culture people, I think, are really starting to think about climate change, and that's encouraging. I mean, he knew his stuff, and that was great. Great, you know. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I was just talking this morning with our, our web producer um, about about before the flood, and she was saying she just watched the trailer and she found it really moving. And then, you know, I was we were just sort of chatting back and forth. I'm really excited to watch it when it comes out on Sunday. Um, I think it's a really great idea, and we were talking about this idea that maybe it's this generation's inconvenient truth, but maybe a little more engaging because it's actually. Talking, you know, it's less in some ways, I guess it reflects the state of where we're at as a society. Inconvenient truth was like, you know, the base level, like here's some climate science in a cool format. And this is really like, what does this mean for for the world, for people living that are vulnerable to these things? Um, so, you know, whether that totally changes the discussion or not remains to be seen. But I think that the fact that you can get this much excitement. And you can see, you know, the review in Rotten Tomatoes and it's got like a 83 percent fresh rating um, for before the flood for a climate movie is a really heartening thing to see. And so hopefully, like I said, maybe it'll be this generation's inconvenient truth to inspire a new you know, wave of people that are like, yo, climate change, that's a thing. We should, we should be serious about it. A couple, you know, new advocates, new climate writers, new whoever it is to really just pick up the mantle of climate change and run with it. And if Leo DiCaprio is listening to this podcast, you have an open invitation to come on the podcast to promote the movie. Okay, so there you... <laughs> that's a good invite, Leo. Take him up on it. Right. And if he wants to, you know, come write an op-ed for Climate Central, I think we'll uh, we can see if we can accommodate him too. <laughs> I'll I'll bump my next guy for you, Leo. So just just contact me, okay? So uh, Brian, this has been a, a phenomenal conversation. I, I've learned a ton, and I've enjoyed talking with you. And just you, do you have any final words before we wrap this up? Uh, you know, I, I'm just really glad you had me on. I think the, the work that you're doing here is really neat. And I think that it sort of speaks to the reality that, you know, even if climate change sometimes seems like this intractable issue, there are people doing stuff on it. And that even if it seems like a really downer issue, there's some really good news coming out. And I'm hopeful that in the coming, you know, months, years, we're going to hear more and more of this kind of stuff that people are actually doing stuff and we're, we're actually going to deal with climate change and solve it. <laughs> All right. That's a great ending message for all you listeners out there. Thanks again. And this is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hi, everyone. That's a wrap for this week. Thanks again to Brian Kahn, senior science writer with Climate Central. Thanks, Brian, for coming on the show. I had a great time. Everybody, don't forget to visit the website at americadapts.org. Please check it out and please consider supporting the website. There's a PayPal option. You could go at low as $5 a month if you want to think about it. That's a cup of coffee and you're getting three to four amazing podcasts a month. So please consider supporting the podcast that way. If you have ideas or comments for the podcast, you can reach me at americaadapts at gmail.com. And I just want to put a shout out. You know, I hear from folks randomly, and that's always an exciting thing for me when I hear from folks randomly. And last week I heard from someone from Auburn Unitarian Universal Fellowship. And so apparently a notice for the podcast went out on this National Unitarian website. So that was great. Very exciting. And thanks for contacting me. Love to hear from listeners. I'm hearing from people from government and NGOs. And just now I'm on the Unitarian Fellowship Network. So great. Thanks. I hope you guys keep tuning in. And again, just some upcoming episodes that we have. I've got Jenny Hoffman with Adaptation Inside having a conversation with Laura Hansen from EcoDap that should be out next week. And then I'm talking with Sasha Peter, eh, sorry, Sasha, Sasha Peterson, who does adaptation consulting in 
Austin, Texas, and I'm also talking with Dr. Jess, Jesse Keenan from Harvard University, and we're going to talk about how academics approach adaptation and adaptation versus resilience, and so I'm very excited about the lineup that we have coming up in November and December, but again, thanks to all my listeners out there. I really appreciate you tuning in, and consider subscribing if you don't subscribe already, and please share if you know your colleagues are interested in this topic. Please share with them that it's out there. And uh, it's always good to get more listeners. So until next time, this is America Daps, the climate change podcast.